Yeah, hey everybody. <clears throat> All right, I've got a new series, which I'm calling uh, Saints, Mystics, and Misfits. And uh, yeah, why? Why would I do that? I don't know, because that's what I want to do. And um, yeah, so I, I guess I want to start off by saying, what do I mean by these three words? <laughs> and why do I think it's important? And then I want to jump jump in, really, to week one of this. So I'm going to give you some, you don't need to accept my definitions of these three categories, saints, mystics, and misfits, as much as just hear them so you understand where I'm coming from. So um, a, a saint, the way I like to look at it, is someone who lives in, in a very compelling way, in a certain way. And so the, the emphasis on, is on living. It's like someone who practices what they preach. You look at their actions, and there's something about their actions that leaves the world changed in some way and affects the world in a certain way. A mystic, I'd like to say, is someone who has an experience of the transcendent, um, of something beyond, internal, external. It almost doesn't matter, but an, has an experience of other. And it, it changes them, affects them, moves them in a certain way, changes their view of the world, and may or may not say anything about it. <laughs> I mean, just because someone has a mystical experience, maybe a mystic, doesn't mean, they might, doesn't mean they'll say anything about it. So that's just a, a little aside about that. And a misfit is exactly what it sounds like, someone who doesn't fit into whatever social norm. And I'd like to say that the kinds of people I want to, to focus on and ask questions about probably have elements of all three of these things. It's kind of like the Holy Trinity here, you know, the saint, mystic, and the misfit, and they kind of, they, they blend. I mean, uh, a mystic probably isn't going to fit into society very well, and, and someone who really practices what they preach isn't going to fit into society very well like a misfit. And a misfit may w very well have had a mystical experience a non-ordinary state or uh, of consciousness that out of which they live differently in the world. So um, that's like a kind of a working operative way of at least the way I describe saint, mystic, and misfit. And I'm not the expert here. I'm not saying the people that I'm going to talk about are for sure the saints, mystics, and misfits that everyone needs to be reading and talking about and following and I'm not saying that. I, I, I want to start in a very personal place, especially today. Who are the people that have influenced me? That's, that's where I'm going to start. And maybe I'll wander into some other terrain, but especially today, very directly and obviously. So I want to challenge you to do the same thing. I don't know how long this series has lasted, but I want you to challenge to do the same thing. Who have been the voices that have most profoundly shaped who you are in the world? For the better, we could say. Um, because I suppose you, you, could, you could do the opposite, but I mean for the better, that has, has, has helped elevate your sense of the world, the way you view the world, your consciousness. And I, I, I challenge you to come up with your own list, just kind of quietly as we're moving along. Maybe you want to share it at a certain point, or share it in Talkback, or share it with me. Who are the voices that have influenced you, the people that have influenced you? And the other part of that, we could add to it, not just personally, but are up to something that are that's still important. They left a mark on the world that we ought not to forget. That's the kind of sort of saint, mystic, or misfit that I'm interested in over the next 
couple months or however long until we run out of steam, okay? Until we've covered them all, all right? So that's kind of where, where I'm coming from. So today, I want to talk about Richard Rohr, which is kind of a funny place to start because Richard Rohr is still alive. And oftentimes when we think about saints, mystics, and misfits, we think, well, they need to be old. You know, they need to be dead to, to count. But I wanted to start with someone who, who's alive. Um, and I wanted to start with him because I started asking the very question that I'm asking you to wrestle with is, who has really left a mark on my life that um, my life would not have been the same had I not run into this particular person? And Richard Rohr definitely is that person for me. I met him at a very crucial time. I met his work at a very crucial time in my life. And it's almost impossible for me to, to, um, to imagine life having not encountered his, his teachings. So that's why I want to start there. I also happen to think he's saying things that really matter, that can help um, grow our sense of um, consciousness, the kind of consciousness that's needed for the 21st century. I think he's that kind of person. And if you were to ask him, by the way, he's a Franciscan friar. If you've never heard of Richard Rohr, that's fine. He's a Franciscan friar and a priest, which is unusual in and of itself. There just aren't that many of them left. I don't know if you've noticed, but young people aren't rushing to be monks and nuns these days. So he's of a certain era, a certain generation, and maybe even a certain way of being in the world that is disappearing. But anyway, he's a Franciscan. And I forgot what I was going to say before I went on that little tangent. It'll come back to me. So... Um, yeah, what was I going to say? Yeah, I met him at a crucial point in my life. That's true. Um, if only this was recorded and I could just rewind it real quick. <laughs> See what I was going to say. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, it's been... Yeah, see you next week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Part two coming up next week. See y'all. <laughs> Okay, anyway, all right, so Richard Rohr, um, let me give you a taste of what he sounds like, just in, in case you're wondering. So look at your little bulletins. I'm going to read you <clears throat> a couple of passages here. I finally remember what I was going to say, <laughs> but I'm not going to say it now. <laughs> all right, here's the reading. There is much evidence on several levels that there are at least two major tasks to human life. The first task is to build a strong container, in quotation marks, or identity. The second is to find the contents of what the container was meant to hold. The first task we take for granted as the very purpose of life, which does not mean we do it very well. The second task, I am told, is more encountered than sought. Few arrive at it with much pre-planning, purpose, or passion. We are a, quote, first half of life culture, largely concerned about surviving successfully. The language of the first half of life and the language of the second half of life are almost two different vocabularies, known only to those who have been in both of them. The advantage of those on the further journey 
is that they can still remember and respect the, the first language and task. They have transcended but also included all that went before. In fact, if you cannot include and integrate the wisdom of the first half of life, I doubt if you have moved to the second. People who know how to creatively break the rules also know why the rules were there in the first place. That's from my, my favorite book, Falling Upward. And here's a little line from his most famous book, Everything Belongs. We do not think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. So that just gives you a little flavor, a little taste of, of the kind of writer he is. It's kind of straightforward and accessible in a way. And, um, now, uh, now I'm going to share with you what I, what I wanted to but forgot for a moment. I didn't read a single thing as I prepared for this week's talk. You're like, oh, this is going to be a good one. Um, I didn't read a single passage from Richard Rohr other than what I just read you because I needed to type it up and put it in the bulletin. I sat down and I thought, what have been his most influential ideas? What are they? And I came up with 10, you know, without stopping. That's how sort of deep it, he's, he went in, so to speak. So I'm going to read you all 10 if I get to all 10. And I'll maybe just do a little riff on each of them and how, how I kind of encountered him. And maybe you'll hear something that will resonate for you and be like, okay, this maybe is something worth checking out or maybe something to wrestle with. And um, Okay, I'm going to say a little bit more s sort of personal things before I read you these ten. Um, I was first given some Richard Rohr stuff on CD. Remember those things? They were like round and they... And they would get scratched, and they wouldn't work in your, in your car. So I was first given um, some talks that he gave. And the first time I listened to him, I was like, this is kind of weird. Like, there's something I kind of liked about it, and then kind of didn't. And, um, and, and I was given these CDs or tapes, um, teachings. About the same time, I was getting deep into historical, critical scholarship around the Bible. Like, I was in deep, like, reading all these, like, critics and, and about to go to graduate school, which I did go to graduate school, and sort of doing a deep dive into the origins of Christianity and the nature of, of uh, comparative religion and, and, um, and critical scholarship. And, and meanwhile, his voice would not go away from me, and I just started to crave just listening to him. I encountered his stuff through um, audio, through CDs. Eventually, I put those CDs on, on, on an iPod. Remember the iPods that had the little wheel? Oh, those were the best. Like, I long for the days of the wheel, you know? But I had all these talks, and I would walk around Jerusalem. At the same time, I'm studying critically um, religion. I'm listening to a Franciscan. And it was just the right kind of, like, paradox and, and, and the amazing thing about Richard Rohr is that he was very familiar with all the things that I was studying. He, too, was a critic of religion and is a critic of religion and, and critical of the origins of Christianity and critical of Western Christianity and yet also has, like, one foot in and, and was sort of calling or, like, like, ringing a little bell that was something like there's something deeper here that you haven't yet encountered. That was the feeling I had. And I just would listen to him. In fact, even when I go to Jerusalem now, I walk around, and there are certain places in Jerusalem that I can hear his voice because that's how much I was listening to him on my little iPod. 
and wandering around the streets. So um, I think I met him, if I had to guess, when I was reaching the transitional point that he's talking about here and falling upward between the first half of life and second half of life. The container had been constructed, and I was, meanwhile, starting to dismantle the very container, like the stupid container, whatever, of my fundamentalist past. And, and, and he kept saying, oh, that's fine, that's good, way to go. But the container's for the sake of the contents. And I started to wonder, what the heck are the contents then? What, what's inside here that the container is just um, a passing form of, a passing sort of a vessel? Okay, so here are 10 things I learned from Richard Rohr. Number one, the way down is the way up. These are all quotes. I mean, these are all one-liners that there's a whole world behind them. But here's the one-liner. The way down is the way up. And... You know, I suppose that sounds, on the one hand, almost too simple or trite, or, but I think beneath it is a kind of mystery. It's what he's talking about here in, in his book, Falling Upward, that, or I'll quote uh, um, Robert Bly for a second, if you want to ascend, you have to descend. So what kind of profound truth is that? And think back on your, your own life. The moments where you were taken down by life itself, I'm not celebrating that. That is painful. That is hard. But in some way, it's a kind of opening. It's a kind of possibility for an expanded view of the world, an expanded consciousness, a kind of insight, a kind of flood of possibility. And it's counterintuitive, and it's not very American. The way up is the way up, and the way up is the way to win, and, the, and winning is all that really matters. That's the illusion of Western American idolatry. And here he comes along and says, um, the way down is the path. And he gets that, he says, from Jesus, who modeled such a thing, who modeled such a thing. And maybe even St. Francis, because obviously he's a, he's a Franciscan himself, so... All right, the way down is the way up. I don't want to say much more about that. Here's number two. How you do anything is how you do everything. How you do anything is how you do everything. So how far do you want to push that? How you do anything is how you do everything. Let me translate what I think he's talking about. If you really pay attention to how you're doing anything at all, it will reveal to you your own present state of consciousness and awareness. So let's pick examples. How you treat your kids is going to tell you something about your worldview. Um, not what you paste, uh, post on Facebook necessarily, but how you, uh, the choices that you're making in the quiet moments of your day reveal something about what's actually the case. How you do anything is how you do everything. So let me think of another example. Um, uh, if the way you 
if how you behave is to constantly find someone to blame, then that's how you're going to do everything. Then that's the consciousness that you're stuck in. So it's, a, it's an invitation to pay attention to what you're actually up to. What am I actually up to? What are the actual patterns that, are, are that, that I'm living into? What does that reveal? What does that reveal? So how you do anything is how you do everything. That can be both read positively and negatively. You know, it has that same quality. All right, here's number three, which actually comes from Ken Wilber, and I probably will do Ken Wilber a little later, and you could hear it in the, in the background of the quote, quotation we just read together, and that is the notion of transcend and include. I'd never heard this before once in my life. I thought that growth was transcend and exclude, right? I transcend, and therefore I put down whatever came before, which is kind of fun, actually. It makes one feel superior. Like, look at those idiots who believe, fill in the blank, that I believed like five minutes ago until I saw the light, you know? But he's saying that that's not real growth, that, that growth transcends and includes, and that is a biological concept. It's not just a you know, some sort of mental construct. Everything in the natural world includes everything in the natural world, you know. Uh, the human body is made up of cells, and those cells are made up of atoms, and each of those things transcend and include each of those things. The molecules don't say, don't say to the atoms, we don't need you anymore, we're good, we're the molecules, you know. Whatever, and it's kind of silly, but... He's saying that's the way the world works, and that's also how growth works. We transcend and include. And that's a bit tricky. That's a bit tricky because how many of you, let's actually do a show of hands, like in the old days, show of hands. Um, how many of you feel like you don't believe certain things that you did 30 years ago? <laughs> All right, that's what I mean. It's a bit tricky. Like, okay, yeah, you don't believe certain things. Or you know, five years ago or something like that. But sit with the question, have I transcended included? Or have I just transcended? What of our own past and the framework needs to be included and maybe what doesn't? I mean, I think that's a fair enough question. And I'm asking that question all the time about my own, you know, Christianity and the, the world that helped raise me from a, a religious point of view. What's to be transcended? What's to be included? Um, what's the danger when I just transcend and exclude? Also, transcend and include is a kind of a challenging thing when, it, when we start thinking about politics as well. It doesn't just apply to religious ideas or spirituality, but it might apply to all kinds of different realms. How do we transcend and include? Transcend and include. Okay. Number four. We don't come to God by doing it right, but by doing it wrong. Okay, we don't come to God. Now, maybe some of you are uncomfortable with the word God or don't particularly resonate with that. Well, let's just you know, expand it a mo for a moment and say we don't come to a larger view of the world or an expanded view of the world or a transcendent view of the world by doing it right, but by doing it wrong. Now, this is kind of a funny thing because... Um, most of religious rules and frameworks are about doing it right, correct? How many of you were raised in a religious environment 
where you were told the right way to behave, okay? Or if you weren't raised in that religious environment, encountered people somewhere on the path that told you the right way to live, okay? Now, he's just pointing out something that regardless of that as like a cultural phenomenon, we could say, how do we come to the divine or a larger view of the world? He says we come to it by bumping into getting it wrong, <laughs> That has a dismantling effect, and I'll just translate it psychologically. The ego is the thing that gets dismantled the moment we don't do it right. I don't know if you're a parent, um, but you've probably found in the course of your parenting, maybe one or two times you did it wrong, okay? <laughs> maybe one or two times. <laughs> For me, it was just once, <laughs> No, I mean, but we know that, like, with the, we, we come to a greater understanding of the thing that we're up to by doing it wrong. Isn't that true? And even in terms of our own growing up, we keep bumping into getting it wrong and doing it wrong, and those are the great openings. And the first time I heard that, that, that helped me relax, to tell you the truth especially when I was busy at the time trying to get it right. And I was like, well, I don't like the religious world that I came from, so I'm going to do it right somewhere else. You know, I'm going to convert to the right kind of Christianity, or I'm going to convert to the right kind of Buddhism, or I'm going to convert to the right kind of um, atheism, and I'm going to get that right, and therefore life will make sense. And he just was reminding me, well, good luck, but when you, as you get it wrong, those are going to be the openings. All right, number five, I'm going to cheat, contains five things, <laughs> okay? <laughs> um, so <clears throat> this is from one of the first books I read of his when I started buying the books, because like I said, I was on the audio kick for a long time. So, uh, it's in a book called Adam's Return, and, and in it, he says there are five passages to what he calls male initiation. Right? So the first thing he says in this book is that we have an epidemic of uninitiated males. We have very few male elders, or adults for that matter. And I read that and I thought, that's right. And the second thing I thought was, I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm not, whatever initiation means, which was important to every single culture on the planet, we do not have initiated people, men or women. So. He just summarizes, what are the five passages of an initiated male? Now, in the background, I want you to go ahead and think, are any of our uh, male-bodied leaders in this country initiated in the way I'm about to describe? <laughs> okay, here are the five things that you must learn, okay? Five things he says you must learn. Number one, that life is hard, okay? Life is hard. Number two, Life is not about you. Okay? Life is not about you. He follows that by saying you are about life. But for the time being, the, the main point, life is not about you. Here's number three, my personal favorite. You're going to die. Okay? Now think about that just for a moment. An initiated person has to bump into these things deeply. And in the old world, they had very serious rites of passage to shake young people into these kinds of truths. 
that life is hard, that life is not about you, that you're going to die. Here's number four. You are not that important. Okay? And we think about, you know, our political leaders who gather and make decisions and vote on things and decide who the leader is going to be, and they're just really following these, that, light, that, that this is not about me, you know. <laughs> yeah, one person laughs. <laughs> okay, and here's number five. Here's number five. You are not in control on a very, very deep level. doesn't mean that you don't have a will, that you, that, that you don't have autonomy, that you don't have choice. It means on a very deep level, you're not in control. You are not making your heart beat right now. So he says, unless, he says, you come into contact with all five of these things, it's very unlikely you'll be a very healthy and generative adult or much less an elder. Okay, so th- that's what I mean. This kind of wisdom not only powerfully shook me up and sent me down a certain path, really, um, but also I think this is pretty important stuff for the, for the broader culture and the place that we find ourselves in right now. Okay, that was number five which had five things. (laughs) Number six, you heard this one already. The container is for the sake of the context. The container is for the sake of the context. This helped me relax around some of the theology that I didn't like, some of the containers I was handed as a kid, some of the images and metaphors, even doctrine statements and statements of faith, things like this. I just started asking, well, what are the contents, you know? After all, the container is an attempt, you know. What's your best attempt at naming things that are hard to name, you know, or truths that are hard to name? Any kind of language or math or symbols, they're, they're containers for what's, what's hard to name. So the containers for the sake of the contents. And, and then he follows that by saying, we shouldn't spend very much time defending the containers, I mean, that, that is something that I wish would echo through all of the great religions right now. We need less time defending the containers and more interest in what's actually in there. Is there anything in there that is true? Okay. Number seven, and this is where things get weird. Right? This is where Richard Rohr um, slips into mystic. Now, first of all, I don't know if I said this at the beginning. I'm just going to repeat it if I did. If I were to ask Richard Rohr if he was a saint, he would say no. <laughs> if I were to ask him, I met him once. I guess I could have. Um, if he was a mystic, he'd probably say no. If I asked him if he was a misfit, he'd say maybe. That's my guess. And these are clues, by the way for how to sniff out saints, mystics, and misfits. They're probably not going to loudly be waving the flag, I'm a mystic, you know, or I'm a, definitely not, I'm a saint, all right? They're probably going to flatly deny it. And maybe that's a clue that, <laughs> that you ought to listen to them. But in, in any case, this is where he's saying something quite mystical. So go with me on this. Mary Magdalene thought Christ was the gardener after the resurrection. You know that scene? If you don't, if you don't know the Gospels, that's fine. Right after the resurrection, Mary Magdalene goes to the garden and she starts talking to the gardener. And she thinks she's talking to the gardener, but it's actually the risen Christ. 
That's the story. You've heard that before? So, Mary Magdalene thought Christ was the gardener after the resurrection, and he was the gardener. (laughs) Wait a minute. Time out. What are you saying? (laughs) He's saying she was talking to the gardener. That's what he's saying. And that gardener, the gardener was somehow Christ. That the res. I'm going to translate here. What he then later calls the universal Christ, the risen Christ, is incarnated in everyday average people like the gardener. He's saying something that what, what would amount to what we would call heresy. <laughs> but he says it in such a simple and obscure way, you're like, oh yeah, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Which is why he gets in trouble sometimes, which is why he's received letters from the Pope saying, Cease and desist. (laughs) That's a very radical claim, and he just leaves it there. Not much else needs to be explained. So that's a very different view of Christ. And when I heard that, actually, my wife told me this because she went to Richard Rohr's um, what's called the Living School. It's a little, it's a two-year program in, in Albuquerque, and she went to it, and she came back from a conference and told me he said this. I was like, wait, What? Okay, number eight. Jesus asked us several times to follow him and never wants to worship him. You know, it's sort of like, at one time I was a worship leader. <laughs> so it's sort of like, wait, what, are you, what was I doing? You know? You know, all these happy, happy songs about Jesus that we sometimes hear, Okay, I'm not, you know, I'm not, let's not criticize those necessarily, but he just makes a point. What was the thing Jesus was up to? All he's doing is saying, put these things into practice. He's not saying, worship me, put up crosses for me, or take crosses down, or whatever, you know. It, that's not, what, that's not the, the, the orientation of the kind of thing that he was up to. And I just remember hearing that and thinking, wait a minute. You know, have I just lost the plot? That's kind of the feeling. Have I just lost the plot here? And has Christianity lost the plot? And Richard Rohr would say, yes. <laughs> Much of Western Christianity has lost the plot. Okay. Um, number nine is really an image. He said, I've been trying to live on the edge of the inside. He says, that's what... The great, really, prophets, we'll add them to the list, saints, mystics, and misfits, do they live on the edge of the inside? I thought that's an interesting image. and That's what I, one thing I found so powerful about his voice in my life because, like I said, I encountered him at the time when I was like deeply into criticism around all things religious, and he was saying, he was just standing with one foot inside saying, don't forget that there are some contents here inside the container that might be worth still hanging on to. And that, that image, I think, is quite profound, the edge, of the, the edge of the inside, because it's one thing to critique outside of the circle. It's another to critique inside. Like, here's another person I think is very influ- influential in terms of critic of religion, and that's Sam Harris, um, the atheist. 
And I think he's doing some very important work. He's also someone I turn to regularly. I listen to his podcast. I don't know if you ever read his book, um, Letter to a Christian Nation. Okay. Now, his critiques of Christianity are valid and ought to be taken seriously, but he's critiquing from the outside. So, as it, I'm not even saying that that's wrong, but I'm saying, who's going to listen to him? <laughs> People who are on the outside. Richard Rohr is taking up a different sort of place, and he's got one foot inside, so his critiques are different. They land differently. When he says things like, Christ was the gardener, he's not saying that as an outsider. He's saying that as an insider. So it has more ripple effects. And, and this is a guess I have. I, this is a completely made-up statistic wondering, statistical wondering. There's no such thing, so <laughs> I just made that up. I imagine... In terms of changing Christianity, Richard Rohr is going to have more of an influence than Sam Harris, even though I think his voice is very important, I really do, or other atheists, in terms of changing Christianity, particularly from the inside. And that's what I think we can hope someone like Richard Rohr is up to in the world by having one foot in. It also raises a personal question that I don't know the answer to. Am I on the the edge of the inside or the outside? <laughs> I don't know. It depends on the day. You know, it depends on the day. There are times when I thought, definitely I'm on the outside. Man, it's nice out here. And then other days, I'd, I'd be like, no, I, I, I very clearly have one foot in this world that I'm trying to take out and I can't. It's like something grips me and causes it to be uh, so, yeah, the way it is, I guess. I'm just going to follow this. this. This is still number nine because i got one more and then I'm done. Um, the edge of the inside, he says the best um, critiques come from within. And I think that that's probably true. The best critiques come from within. So, I mean, you can think about that in your own life. Well, what do I have the right to critique? Well, the thing that you're in or that you've been in, that you know. It's why Jesus criticizes the Pharisees because he was a Pharisee. I don't mean necessarily political party because it was a political party, but he's more like them than anyone else. Guess who he doesn't criticize? Gentiles. He's like, hey, come on, come on in, essentially. And doesn't call them sinners or vipers or who does he call sinners and vipers? Religious people, Pharisees, teachers, because that's what he is. So he has the right to, to say that. It's why I suppose I can criticize my own Baptist world, but I really have no right criticizing Buddhism or, or even Catholicism for that matter, you know? <laughs> I just remembered as, as a Baptist, we used to call uh, the Catholic Church the great Satan, you know? <laughs> the great Satan. <laughs> Talk about shadow, you know? <laughs> anyway. All right, one more, final one, which is in your bulletin. And then I'll just let things be. We do not think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. Much of my life, I've gone the other way around. That I thought if I just read the right thing and thought the right thoughts and had the right argument and won the right arguments, I'd have the right, I don't know, way of living. And it turns out it doesn't seem to work that way. And real, radical, profound change is rooted in how we live. And acting differently in the world will change your thinking. That's what he's saying. So go and find out. It's like, it's like is that Gandhi be the change you want to see in the world? Yeah. 
Well, you have to be. <laughs> you have to be that thing. You have to act in the world in a certain way. And perhaps if you're lucky enough over time, it'll change the way you think about things. So that's contribution number one, the saints, mystics, and misfits. Thanks for listening.